Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read a rather lengthy portion of Scripture here this morning. Our subject will be an individual called Legion. Mark chapter 5, reading at verse 1. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, that would be Jesus, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. As I said, we'll title this Legion, for this is the individual's name, although in another gospel account, in Matthew's account, we're told there were two individuals. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all deal with this same miracle that was done. Only Matthew reports that there were two. We know nothing. It would be total speculation and conjecture as to who the other individual would have been or what not. But the Bible is a revelation, is it not? And it is a revelation that basically can be and should be, I believe, divided into two categories. It tells us and reveals to us God. It's God's revelation of himself. And it is God's revelation of ourself. And that is what we are to see in the Bible from cover to cover. We need to see God. We need to see ourselves. God is infinite. You can see and see and see and always see more. And unfortunately, as we look at ourselves and our sinful depravity, the same thing is true. The more we look and the deeper we look, the more we find. But that's what makes us better creatures, is by having a greater knowledge and an understanding of both God and ourselves. 
and of course the relationship by grace that we have through Him. Now, the Bible has many persons detailed in character, in deed, and in different ways. And I have always been amazed at the Holy Spirit's wisdom in the individuals that it tells us about and others it doesn't tell us about. But every narrative of every miracle, of every individual, of everything that it says about them, about their lives, about circumstances, whether they be named, whether they be unnamed, whether they be famous or infamous or whatever it is, is for our learning. And the proneness that we all have as sinners is very natural to see or look, to compare and judge. Whether we're looking at the Bible or looking in the world, as I look at you, as we look out there, as we look at co-workers or whatever, whoever it may be, the natural tendency in sinners is to look upon another person and to compare ourselves with that person and in the usual sense, to esteem ourselves above and beyond that other person. Well, yeah, they may be a greater athlete than I am, but I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm. That, that's just natural. And to compare and judge in an unrighteous manner. However, we learn that by God's grace, these examples and people and the things that are said about them in Scripture are for us to compare to ourselves and learn about ourselves, not to exert superiority over others. These things aren't given us to, for us to be the armchair quarterback on Monday morning, as the saying used to go, you know. Well, he should have, or she should have, or they ought not, or this, that, and other, and I would have done this or that. That's, that's not why they're there. But the lost, the unbelieving, as we once were, who are naturally self-righteous to some degree, will all them see, always see themselves or tend to see themselves, again, in a superior fashion, or I would have done this or I wouldn't have done that. Even in the Bible things. When you were lost, you were engaged probably in that just as I was, you know, well... He shouldn't have done that. And this is what the, you know, it's a judgment thing. And that's because we don't have any discretion, nor do we have any spiritual discernment by grace. But when God saves us by, our, by His grace, we tend then to have a different look on things. Then we see the faults of people in the Bible and their failures and the things that they didn't do that they should have done, the acts that they committed they should have abstained from, and instead of looking at them and judging them, we say, that's me. I see me in them. Now if you're saved by grace, that's a good way to measure whether you're truly saved. What do you see when you read about a sinner in God's Word? Are you prone to just point a finger and say, aha, there's the sinner? Or do you point the finger at you and say, oh boy, that's me. It's amazing how that perspective changes when God saves a sinner, isn't it? We lose that proneness to judge others so quickly, although we'll always fight it. And we see that 
those things rest in us that we see and dislike in others. And I have always had a fondness for this particular individual we're speaking about today and this particular miracle, not that the any of them are insignificant, but my fondness for this particular individual and this miracle is because it seems like this individual portrays to us this demon-possessed man called Legion. So many characteristics that really take us into the depths of our depravity and what sinners we were. I don't know how to say it other than kind of like uh, the woman who wept on Jesus' feet and dried her tears and the washing with her hairs and Jesus said she loves much because her sins are many. Only she and God knew how many her sins were. Job asked the question, how many are my sins? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, there's some individuals you look at and say, oh boy, I can go where I can go there. I can see my sins in them and that. Well, this individual seems to really set that forth. And uh, it's just always speaking, spoke, spoke to me in a special way. You know, it, it'd be easy for a woman to look, who was a harlot, and look at Rahab and say, yep, that's me, you know, those sins of harlotry and what have you. It might be easy for somebody who was a cheat and a fraud and an embezzler to look at Zacchaeus and say, yep, that was my sin, boy. I committed so many sins by embezzlement and this. And you could look at Jacob and the conniver and betrayer that he was. You could look at David's adultery. You could look at Saul being a murderer and a blasphemer. And you might attach with any one of those because of your particular sins. But this individual, by the human characteristics that are portrayed, seems to engage the fullness to me of those sins. And likewise... Like Jesus said about the woman whose sins were many, that's just more to be forgiven. And where sin abounds, grace can much more abound. So the further we see the depth of depravity, the more grace we can see that it took to liberate us from it. And likewise here, it demonstrates some things that we'll hope to point out to you, is that in spite of being what we might deem the worst of sinners, the love and mercy and grace and propitiation of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover it all. And it is a deliverance and a salvation that knows no bounds when it comes to sins and is transforming by saving grace. Well, we want to look at two things in this, and that is, number one, legion, being the revelation and type of a sinner of ourselves, and Jesus the Savior being the deliverance from that. It is hard for us to imagine almost, is it not, an individual like this description we have of this man. If there was ever a wild man, this is he. If there was ever a violent man, an out of control man, an insane man or whatever, I mean, he's all of it. Not some of it, but seems to be all of it. And as I began to contemplate this individual and in turn contemplate myself as a sinner, a scripture comes to mind first and foremost 
from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.18, and I think this was a scripture that came up recently in some discussion that we had. But the scripture says in Ecclesiastes 3.18, I said in my heart concerning the state of the sons of men that God might manifest, and here again may manifest, reveal, or prove them, that they may see that they themselves are beasts. Now, that's a big plunge, is it not? From being a human being to being an animal. And we know that literally happened to Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? We, we know God just kind of, uh, how would I say it, kind of pulled the plug a little bit on Nebuchadnezzar and immediately he became a beast and remained a beast. Well, the bottom line is, if you understand the fall of man, you realize that man fell off of his pedestal and pinnacle and fell literally into the trough with the animals practically when he fell in the garden. I'm not saying that everybody is an animal, behaves like an animal, an animal like that. I'm saying we, by sin, have fallen back into the potential to be nothing more than animals without God. We use the expression sometimes to live like an animal. People have lived like an animal. People do live like an animal. And many people do it by choice, not because they have to. They will live in filth and in all kinds of things with characteristics like an animal. It's sad. We understand that. We understand why that happens. We understand why people will do that. You just fall back to the old instinctively sinful, selfish of what I want. Having characteristics and traits just like animals. Sad, but we're not going to be naive and deny it. And this individual seemingly wasn't much more than an animal. I thought about this driving down here this morning never thought of this thought before and I thought you know if there had been any evolutionist in the time and day of Jesus when this happened they'd have claimed this man as the missing link I mean he was he was he was the in between was he not I don't know if they'd have called him a man but of course evolution hadn't evolved yet at that time had it but let's look at the things it says concerning him and make application in that respect to sinners. The Bible says when Jesus hit the seashore, this man had an unclean spirit in verse 2. An unclean spirit. That's synonymous with what Matthew says in Matthew eight twenty-eight that he was possessed with devils in the plural. And Luke says in 8.27 he, he had devils. And by the way, uh, we're doing Mark 5 on this. Matthew chapter 8 is the account in Matthew's gospel and Luke chapter 8 is where you find the account in Luke's gospel. So unclean spirits possessed with devils had devils. Now, I'm going to be brief here, but let's not forget the fact that demon possession was not just these Jesus' day. 
And when we talk about demon possession, we're, not, we're talking about that can vary by degrees. But the bottom line is, the Scripture tells us all that we had demon possession to a degree as fallen sinners from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Before we were quickened, we were dead in trespasses and sin and walked according to the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And among whom also we had our conversation in time past. Here's the animal characteristics. Uh, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's demon possession. Satan's influence. Satan working in. So we all have that to a degree. This man had an overwhelming degree of it in his possession. So, as he is possessed, so are we. Call it influence, call it possession, whatever you'd like, but you can't deny it's there according to Ephesians chapter 2 in all sinners. And it says in relationship to being dead in trespass and sin that he dwelt in the tombs. Well, that's a graveyard. That's a cemetery as we know it. And without going into great detail, tombs were erected in some ways, kind of like some you see in some graveyards today. They're like a little rock house or something, and you can kind of go in there. Well, whatever there was there, this is where this guy lived. Dwelling in the tombs. Now, how many people would be comfortable living in a graveyard? Not many. A lot of people don't even want to live next to one, much less within one. But the bottom line here is again that sinners who are dead in trespasses and sin like to dwell in and among and with those of their own kind, other sinners who are also dead in trespasses and sin. They love darkness rather than light, and thus they come to the light and their deeds be reproved, as John chapter 3 says. So the dead dwelling among the dead, and like Christ said when an individual refused to follow him because he needed to bury somebody, he said, let the dead bury the dead in that respect. So it fits. You're going to find sinners dead in trespasses of sin among other sinners with whom they share things in that regard. But the Bible also says that he abode not in a house, according to Luke 8 and 27. Now, again, for a person not to live in a house this day and time would be called homeless. But in this sense that we find this, this man was uncivilized. There was nothing civil about this individual due to his state being demon-possessed, all right? I mean, as we said, in this state he was in, he was in an, what I would call an uncivilized, alienated state. He was alienated from civil society or anything that we might deem civil by who he was and where he abode. The Bible also says that he dwelt not only in the tombs, but in the mountains. So he was literally separate from and an outcast from the society, much like a leper would have been in the Old Testament. Reminds us again that as sinners, we are alienated from God. We are outside of the camp. We are separate because of who and what we are as sinners. Isaiah again says, Your sins and iniquities have separated between you and God. Sin is the, sin is the wedge that has driven us like Adam and Eve out of God's presence. So this man is in a terrible, terrible state. It goes on to say that he literally, it doesn't say he's wild, but it says no man could tame him. He's untamed, wild, just like an animal. 
wild and untamed and fierce, meaning violent. The Bible says that people avoided going in the way or being around this individual because of his wild, fierce, malicious, violent, and untamed nature. I mean, it brings danger to you. Well, sinners are dangerous. <laughs> I mean, they're dangerous. Now, there's a lot of civil sinners, but they got this little thing I'm talking with in their mouth, and so do you and I. And the way James talks, there's not a more evil thing that a human being can have than this thing flapping around in our jaws, the tongue. I mean, there are nice, upstanding citizens that, you know, have evil tongues. If everything else was right, that would be enough to commit a multitude of sins, wouldn't it? And it does. It's a little fire set on, set on flame from hell, the Bible says. So if you were a Pharisee and done everything else right and obeyed everything and didn't commit a sin without, that little tongue, I bet, still committed a sin. But we know better than that because the sins are committed in the heart. But nevertheless, this man, as his natural state was, was not only, we see, dangerous to himself, but dangerous to others. That's a natural quality for all of us as sinners. Little kids will cut down other kids. Adults will cut down others. We'll steal from one another. We'll lie to one another. We'll cheat one another and everything else. Sinners are dangerous. And then we see that in this possession with these demons that this man was literally a superman. If there's ever a superman in the Bible uh, from the dark side, if you want to call it that, this man was it. The Bible said he'd been bound in chains and broken. Well, we've all seen and grew up with Superman and superheroes and things like that, right? So evidently and obviously, and this has been attested to by notable documented accounts of people who are mentally retarded, insane, whatever, Literally, where the term kind of comes from, they don't know their own strength. They don't have any mental inhibitions. And they just do things that a human being naturally should not be able to do. And well, you've heard those stories. We know, well, this man tells us where it comes from. It's because of these demons. They couldn't be bound and he couldn't be bound. So, let's draw something from this. This man had supernatural strength and ability that they could tie him with a rope. And like Samson, he could bust it. They could put chains on him and they wouldn't hold him. He was, in that sense, uncontrollable. He could not be controlled. Human efforts were only temporary, and they failed. Reminds us of another thing about sinners, isn't it? The government can do a lot of things for sinners, but they're still going to be sinners. Mom and dad can do a lot for their children who are sinners, but they're still going to be sinners, you know? I mean, everything that human beings can do for sinners is without. You can educate a sinner, and he may still be an evolutionist or a blasphemer. Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was an educated man. He's one of the biggest sinners there ever was. Nebuchadnezzar had all kinds of greatness and intelligence. He ruled a kingdom, a mighty kingdom, didn't he? He was still a sinner. He didn't believe in God. He was out of control. Saul was out of control. 
You and me may have been nothings on this planet compared to those individuals, but we were likewise out of control. Sin takes us out of control. That, that's just, I mean, we could talk and talk, but that's the bottom line. And again, education is not going to get you in control. A penitentiary may not get you in control or anything else because sin will just keep on begetting sin. So that quality certainly shows us that sinners are uncontrollable by human means. It needs a divine work within rather than reform outward to save a sinner. The Bible also tells us this man was naked. He's just like an animal. He run around naked. Luke 8, 27, he wear no clothes. Now it doesn't take long for any of us to get a vivid picture of what a naked unwashed, unclean, living like an animal human being is going to look like over just a short period of time. Not over, perhaps, we don't know how long this man been like this, but it don't take long. Use the expression to go with the dogs in looks and acts and anything else like this. This, was, this would have been a terrible thing to see. This man would have been a despicable sight. And I mean, as I describe him here, don't your heart just break that this the state this man is in, and it's all because of what? Demon possession. Well, why is there demon possession? Because there's sin. Because there's a Satan. Because there's a devil who sinned. You see, it all is rooted in sin. Well, unfortunately, I must make this comment, you know. <laughs> seems to be a characteristic of sinners a lot of times. Won't be naked, isn't it? Adam and Eve, I thought about this, you know, when they recognized their sin, they recognized their nakedness, and they recognized there was a shame to be associated with nakedness. But as the world went on toward the flood, that kind of gradually and gradually fell by the wayside, and you can only imagine what was going on then by what's going on today, because the Bible says it will be as in the days of Noah, and there has always been and always will be people who want to get naked for the wrong reasons and people who boast and take pride in nakedness. I mean, go back to the Greeks even. Look at all the naked sculptures, you know? I mean, and yet we look to them and say, oh, these people were great and all that. And they had public displays of nakedness everywhere. Well, we got porn and everything today and everything else and people that get rich and famous and everything else by doing what? Taking their clothes off and they do it unashamedly. Where does that come from? It's a characteristic of sin and sinners. So, you know, I know that's kind of an odd comparison. You probably didn't think, you know, making that comparison, but here's a man who's wild in it, but there's no difference in the hearts of those who unashamedly will go naked or try to go half naked or get as close to naked as they can in the generation we live in today. It's sad. This man was literally out of his mind. He was crazy. He was irrational. He couldn't make right decisions, good choices, or anything else. Well, as sinners, it's our nature to make bad choices. You know? Preacher, are you saying every sinner's crazy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. We were just like the prodigal. We were all out of our mind. We all needed to come to ourselves. And I'm not going to make fun and call it a come to Jesus moment. I don't believe in a come to Jesus moment as the world talks about. 
But the Bible says that prodigal came to himself. This man come to himself too, but he didn't do it all by himself and neither did the prodigal. But we need a change of mind. A change of mind, a change of heart, by the way, is repentance. And before God saves us and His grace comes, we are selfish, crazy, out of our minds, self-centered sinners. All of us to various degrees. And that needs to change. God is not at all, the Bible says, in the thoughts of the wicked. Again, that's what sin has done. The Bible says this individual would harm himself by cutting himself on sharp stones. Sinners live a life without God and everything they do is harming themselves. They don't realize it. They think they're doing good. Well, we've been there. I'm, what I'm telling you is your track record and mine to some degree. I don't, no matter of age, how long we were lost, or when we were saved by grace, the bottom line is every point I'm making to some degree applies to every one of us. Some points more than others. Some longer over time than others. But we couldn't see when we were sinning that we were in reality harming ourselves, did we? Every sin, every sin, sin, of everybody harms you at a minimum. And usually, like the pebble in the lake, affects others also. Every sin. We've talked about this at, at some times in Bible studies and different things to different degrees, but the, the ripples, sometimes it, it takes the ripples as they hit other people to get attention of what damage we've done. God can use that. Why would this man harm himself? Why would a sinner harm himself? Why would a sinner make the choice to do something when they know it's going to bring harm to them? Well, I'm going to gamble everything away and let my family stop. Well, why are you going to do that? Why are you going to buy that when you can't provide, you know, and just choices, choices? Because they're sinners. And it's the nature of sinners to put self-gratification first at the cost of anything or anybody else. And so this guy cutting himself and bleeding all over the countryside with sharp stones is no different than sinners making a choice to go to the gambling hall, strip joint, or, or anywhere else. And I'm just using something that comes off the top of my head. But whatever they're indulging in on Sunday afternoon or whatever, or Sundays and not being in church, or whatever their priorities are, all alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. It's all self-harm. And enough of it, you keep hurting yourself long enough, you can eventually destroy yourself. And unfortunately, we know the testimony is just that, that sinners who live their lives, whether it be 10 or 100 years, without God and without Christ, it has been nothing when we, when we close the Catholic casket, put them in the ground and put the dirt over it was a life of self-destruction. That's unfortunate, but that's the Bible, is it not? So this man was miserable. Imagine hearing him wailing and hollering and crying out, the Bible says. Out there in the cemetery, the tombs and the mountains. I mean, you know, even a, a wolf howling at night kind of has a beauty to it, even though there's a vicious animal behind it. But to hear a human individual crying out in the night in this despicable state, who would want to listen to that when they lay down at night down in town and have to, oh, 
Heartbreaking misery, is it not? And you hear that sound if you laid down tonight and you heard this man crying out, and you laid down tomorrow night, what would remind you? Just hopelessness. Just utter hopelessness. And I want to add one last thing that probably nobody would ever think of, and I'm not elevating myself by saying this, that this man also had the faith of devils. He was possessed of devils. But the Bible says when Jesus hit the shore and he saw him afar off, he come a-running. Now this was demon possession. But what does James say about the devils? You have faith in God? Well, that's good, but the devils do too. They believe and tremble. Most people don't even tremble or have any fear of God. The demons at least were able to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and know that one day they were going to have to deal with Him. But the fear and the what brought them was a terrorizing fear. In spite of all I've said describing sinners, a sinner can be all of that and still believe in God and still perish. That's my point. You can have a faith. Yeah, I believe in God. You know, I... I believe in something inside of me. There's something in my heart and you, you can talk it up any way you want to anyway and you can die and go to hell believing that. There's got to be a change. Well, then we see in spite of all of that and what a hopeless picture that is, here comes Jesus. And I want to point out to you something you may not realize. Jesus is not only a miracle worker, a deliverer, uh, uh, you know, bringing salvation to this man. But in the previous chapter, if you read the verses ahead on your own time, Jesus made a special trip to come to this place and for no other reason than this man. In every one of the gospel accounts in the previous chapters, in Mark chapter 4 here, the Bible speaks to us of the effect that uh, in verse 35, same day Jesus said unto him, let us pass over to the other side. Sea of Galilee, he's all the way on the other side to see Nobody knows why Jesus wants to go across the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is not always a pleasant place, and in this case there wasn't because a great storm arose. This is the occasion where Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the ship. The disciples thought they was going to all die and perish, and they went and woke Him up, and even throwed that rebuke at Him. Don't you care that we perish? And this was the occasion of the miracle of Jesus simply saying, Peace be still. I mean, that miracle. And it baffled them so that they said, we thought we know who it was, but what kind of guy is this that even the winds and the seas obey? It was that trip, that trip, folks, he was going to see this man. It was just like the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus got up one day and said, we must need to go through Samaria. And they couldn't figure out why in the world he wanted to go down there again when they almost got killed the last time they were going down that area, direction, you know. And why they were going to do what they did. Well, Jesus had a point. Jesus is a seeking Savior. Jesus knew what He was about. This man was one of the lost sheep. And He made a special trip just for Him, risking, if humanly speaking, a dangerous journey and the disciples to get there. Point made. Peace be still. When he hit the shore, coming for this man, as we now know, since nobody else came to Christ while he was there, and he quickly had to leave because they didn't want him there, 
then it's obvious that he came for this individual. And again, these devils could have took off and run in this man in an opposite direction, could they not? I mean, they had full possession of this guy. They come running right to him. And that I see, it's in verse uh, 2 here of our text, it says, immediately there met him. In verse 6, when they saw Jesus afar off, he ran to him. You know what comes to my mind? John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me will come unto me. <laughs> this coming was even of an individual possessed of demons. And it's showing you that nothing can stop the work of grace in a sinner that God will bring everyone in spite of. In spite of everything. And in fact, when I see him running and a coming, I see it like the prodigal. Again, the same illustration. John 6, 44, No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. When you see a sinner running to Christ, that's because grace has been drawn him. Amen. He's being brought. He was sought, as the song says, and he's being brought in spite of the demons here. The demons brought him for the wrong reason, but nevertheless, he came. <laughs> That's irresistible grace if there is such a thing. And Jesus says, come out of the man. Now understand, not everybody upon whom Jesus performed a physical miracle received a miracle of grace in their heart. Good illustration, Jesus healed ten lepers, only one come back. There's only one that was really saved. I don't know what the percentages are, nine out of ten or whatever, but sometimes there was. The sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven you, take up your bed and walk. It was synonymous, you know, but not everybody. He healed people from daylight to dark, and there was only 120 on the day of Pentecost. So that tells you the proportion is not equal. But Jesus says, come out of the man possessed with a legion of devils. And again, we marvel at the power of Jesus. Again, I mentioned the sick of the palsy. Jesus essentially said, what difference does it make? Well, obviously it does. It makes a difference. You know, forgiveness of sins is different from being healed from a lame disease. But Jesus' point was this. If I've got power to do one, I've got power to do other. I, got, <laughs> I know no limitations. And so again, Jesus addressing a legion of devils. Now I don't know how many devils is in this man, but a legion of army soldiers in the Roman army was 6,000. Now that doesn't mean that because he was called legion, it just says many. It didn't have to be in the thousands. It could have been ten. I don't know. But again, Jesus' power and authority is demonstrated here and that it don't matter how many at the rebuke of come out, they came out. Jesus claimed his lost sheep. He came from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, went through a storm to an unwelcome place, but he claimed his sheep. He delivered this man from demon possession. This man was, again, as Ephesians says, quickened from the state of dead and trespasses and sins and delivered from the power of the devil. 
to become a follower of our Lord. That is the transformation of grace. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation in Christ. Is that not what the Scripture says? Let me make sure. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And I emphasize that. What this man was and what he becomes. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. How do we know that? Look at verse 15. Him that was possessed with the devil is now, literally we could say, possessed with Christ. Christ has driven out the devil and Christ now occupies the place vacated of the devils. And you talk about a transformation. You talk about a miracle. I remind you again the things I described to you. We can go throughout the Gospels and take all day and say, here's a blind man, he got his sight. Here's one sick of the palsy, he received, he received healing from the palsy. Here's a man with a withered hand, if God fixed it, Christ fixed his hand. Here's a deaf man, God gave him his sight. But all the things I went through is a radical transformation of everything about this man. You see what I'm saying? That's what this brings to the table, this individual. Think about those things. Wild, untamed, uncontrollable, hurting himself, wailing, screaming, miserably, naked, you know, where he lived, how he lived, all of this animal-like instinct. And now verse 15, it says, him that was possessed, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. The man is so transformed it scared him to death. That's literally what he's saying. It, it's, it's so radical it scares him. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? I mean, that's what we want to see. We want to see sinners saved and we want to see them transformed by the grace of God so much that it scares the people that formerly knew them. Remember the blind man, John Dunn? What, 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 was it, is this your son? Was he blind or was he not blind? Confusion. Likewise here, scare him to death. But notice the transformation. i got a few points here and we're done. Sitting. Transformation here is he ran around and lived like a wild man. Sitting. Think about the lions that you see in the circus. They run around in the jungles. They do anything they want, when they want, where they want, however they want, right? And then you see one in a circus, and lo and behold, there are things sitting on a little stool over there. And it don't get off the stool unless the guy in there lets it get off the stool. And then he tells it when to go back to the stool, right? You, you know what I mean? Submission. Subdued. Submissive. Tamed. Peaceful. That's what the grace of God does. It does it all within. What man can't do without, God does within by His glorious and wonderful Holy Spirit in quickening sinners to life. The man is in a subdued position. He's no longer a threat to others. He's no longer a danger to himself. Grace will tame any sinner. 
You know, and that's a good word for it. A lot of sinners just flat out need to be tamed. They need, like a lion, they need to have a whip cracked in their face, don't they? And sometimes God will do that. He's done it with a lot of people in the Old Testament, didn't He? Or New Testament too. Damascus Road. And it says clothed. He knows it's the right thing to put on clothes now. I mean, you know, he's got his right senses about him. He can recognize the shame of being naked. And, and you know, always the grace of God teaches us that we were not only guilty, but we were shameful when we were guilty. You know, none of us crow like roosters about what we were in our sins of the past, do we? If we do, we're, we're claiming we don't know. Well, let me tell you about how when I was a sinner, we don't, we don't boast of such things like that. We're ashamed of them. But shame is one of those things that's out the window in this culture, and you know that along with embarrassment and guilt and everything else. But again, no longer uncontrollable, uncivilized, at peace, clothed, and in his right mind. The only way to get in your right mind is to be saved by the grace of God. Education won't put you in the right mind. Evolution won't put you in the right mind. There ain't nothing in this world puts you in the right mind but the grace of God in the Bible. That's it. It's the only thing that will make you think right. You can read philosophy books. You can read the writings of men till you're blue in the face and fall over dead from not eating and not drinking. And you won't be any better for it. But the Bible has the answers. And by the power of the Holy Spirit will make you think right. To reason right. To make good choices. To understand who God is. To understand who you are. And evidence that this man was not just healed in the flesh is, as Jesus started to leave, the Bible says here, verse 18, He wanted to be with Him. That's one of the best testimonies I know of of a person being saved by grace. How, long, how bad do you want to be with Jesus? <laughs> how bad do you want to follow Jesus? He wanted to go where Jesus went. He wanted to be with His Lord. He wanted to be with His shepherd. The individual who transformed His life, what people couldn't do, Jesus did. Is that not the testimony of sinners? I tried this, I tried that. I did this, I did that. But God. But God. But grace. Jesus said, no. Won't you do something else? Don't go with me. Go for me. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus could have had a purpose to say, yeah, come with me. i got something I want you to do on the other side of the shore of Galilee. But that was not the place in the garden where this man was going to labor. Now think about it again. Jesus made a special trip, saved this individual or two, as Matthew would account. And instead of taking him back somewhere else, he said, no, I want you to stay right here. Won't you stay right here? And is this not precious? And is this not what we've all been called to? Read it with me. Jesus' words in verse 19. Go home to thy friend. He didn't have a home, by the way. I guess he did at one time or Jesus wouldn't have said that. He didn't have no friends. Right? I mean, because of who and what he was. But now, go home, former home, Go thy former friends 
and tell them what great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. That's the duty of every one of us. And not only should we should be willing to do it, we ought to be excited to do that. You have nothing any better as a topic of conversation than that if you're a born-again believer. You realize that today? As I leave you, I want to impress that point upon you and myself. We have the greatest thing in the world to talk about, so why shouldn't we talk about it? Amongst ourselves or anybody else. It don't matter what kind of knowledge you got of anything else. It doesn't compare with this. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus said, I want you to be a witness for me right here. Right here. We don't read, we're like Moses or anybody else. He made excuses. Well, I, 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 I. No. It, this just blesses my heart. I just get so much joy out of this verse 20. He's like Abraham. When Abraham was told to go sacrifice Isaac, and you just read those blessed words, and Abraham got up and saddled his ass, and away he went. Verse 20, he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. I don't know if anybody believed or not. But he got the message across because all men did marvel. That's what God's called us, every, every one of us to. And it don't matter if people believe or don't believe. That's God's business. But God has called us to be a light, to be salt, to be a testimony of what great things He hath done for us. I don't know as much about what He's done for you as I do about what He's done for me. I'm not supposed to tell others what He's done for you. I'm supposed to tell him tell what He's done for me. I know that personally. And if people marvel, or if people don't believe it, or if people do believe it, to God be the glory. That's His business. I hope today you can see yourself in Legion because it has such a happy and wonderful and beautiful ending. If you can see yourself in that despicable creature of a man, then you can see yourself by the grace of God as a blood-bought child of God, servant of the Most High Jesus, called to bear witness of His saving grace. God give us the grace to bear that light honorably. Amen.